0: This message was presented at the GYC 2017 conference, Arise, in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. All right, everybody. It is 4 o'clock. I apologize for going over the last time. I guess I lost track of time. But uh, we've got one more hour to go. Just curious, how many of you were here for all previous three sessions? All right, so uh, I guess uh, all of you are going to get one free Bitcoin afterwards? No, just joking, (laughs) just joking, just joking. (laughs) You wish, right? All right, so... um, Let's, uh, let's get started. We're going we're gonna to continue, finish off the day, and we'll let you go. Hopefully, I won't go as far over like I did last time. So let's bow our heads together as we begin. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being with us so far this day with the various topics we've talked about, giving us wisdom to how to analyze and deal with some of the issues that have come before us. I pray that you will be with us now as we talk about getting out of debt um, and budgeting, Give us clarity of thinking as we manage our finances in accordance to your will. In Jesus' name, amen. So, session four, therewith to be content. So here, this hour, we're going to be sp- focusing specifically on debt and budgets. Debt and budgets. For those of you who have been asking, this is my website. There's a, w- there's a web address, crumbs.com. And also, um, GYC 2005, Beyond the Tithe is the name of that seminar, if you want to go back and listen to that. So debt, we shared these two passages this morning, verses, says, the borrower is servant to the lender, Proverbs 22, 7, also translated slave. And Adventist Home, page 393, paragraph 4. Be determined never to incur another debt. Deny yourself a thousand things rather than run in debt. This has been the curse of your life. Getting into debt, avoid it as you would the smallpox. Is it a sin to be in debt? No. I can't, I can't say that it's a sin, but is it a desirable state to be in debt? The illustration here is being in debt is being a slave and having smallpox. It's not necessarily a sin to be a slave, it's not necessarily a sin to have smallpox, but you don't want either one. So that's the best illustration I can give you as far as debt goes. You don't want it, but it's not necessarily a matter of sin. So we are a nation of slaves with smallpox. And the article actually that I pulled this from, the title said, debt is as American as apple pie. And this is how it looks. Average household debt in 2016 is $137,000. Average car loan is $29,500. Average student loans, $50,000. Average credit card balances, (coughs) a little under $17,000. And credit card interest, just the interest per year, $1,300. I don't know about you, but this is frightening to me. I am allergic to debt and looking at this just makes my skin crawl. So we have a problem and this then, this kind of debt then translates into other problems. I shared this stat earlier, 63% of Americans don't have cash to cover a $500 emergency. So what do you suppose these people do when they have a $500 emergency? They swipe their credit card and all of a sudden they've got $500 compounding interest going on in their credit card account on top of, you know, whatever 10, 15,000, 16,000 credit card debt they already have. 56.3% of Americans have less than $1,000 in their checking and savings accounts combined. We talked about having an emergency fund earlier, and as long as you have a fully funded emergency fund, you can be assured that you will not be in this statistic. what does this actually mean? The majority of Americans, over 50%, are one paycheck away from catastrophe. That's the nation we live in, a nation of slaves with smallpox. So what are we going to do about it? Before we get to how to address the debt problem, we need to answer this question. So is it ever okay to be in debt? And if so, when? How do we know? We need some guidelines. We need some some guardrails to keep us from falling off the cliff and being like everyone else in this nation of slaves with smallpox. This statement comes from Publishing Ministry, page 209, paragraph 4 and 5. Ellen White writing, I now write to ask you if you will let me have the use of $2,000 to help me in bringing out books that the people need. If I should fall in the conflict before the Lord's appearing, my sons would carry forward the work of circulating my books according to my plans. When the expense of issuing my books is lessened, the sales will soon pay up all my debts. So did Ellen White borrow money? Yes, she did. But what was she borrowing money for? To bring out books. And those books generate income that will soon pay the debts off. So this gives me principles for determining when debt is appropriate or acceptable. Rules for debt, number one, never borrow money for something that only goes down in value. And a corollary to that related, borrowing is acceptable only if what you're buying can pay off the debt. These are the rule, two rules for acceptable debt. Now there's this term good debt, bad debt. Have you heard of that before? This is generally the rules for what people consider good debt. You borrow money to make more money, and it theoretically pays it off. Now, the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy tells me that being in debt is being a slave. Being in debt is having smallpox. With that in mind, it is very difficult for me to call any debt good debt. Okay, so I shun away from that term. I call this acceptable debt, meaning it's okay if you must, but it's still, you're still better off without it. So these are the two rules. So let's uh, let's let's quiz our application of these two rules. Let's take a look one by one. Do these things pass the debt rules? Student loans. Is it an acceptable form of debt? Student loans. Does it only go down in value? Can it pay it off? Can it pay itself off? The answer is yes. Student loans. So an education is probably the most valuable thing you can ever obtain in life, particularly if it's an education that gains you entrance into the heavenly kingdom, of course, but even here on this earth, it increases your increases your earning capacity and all of that. So theoretically, unless you're, you know, the proverbial uh, degree in underwater basket weaving, that's not gonna work. But suppose you get a normal degree where you get a career that raises the level of earnings, it should be able to pay itself off. I have a whole series on Student loan forgiveness. I know there's some questions about that out there on my blog I'm actually not going to talk about it here, but I crunched the numbers But even then there have been some some changes to that program uh, and it's worth it to consider Whether that's a legitimate way to uh, handle your student loans. Uh, what about a home mortgage? Do the, does it pass the rules for acceptable debt does a house only go down in value? No, can a house go down in value? Yes, it can but generally speaking, it, it does go up, it has the potential to go up, and can it pay itself off? Well, in the form of saving on your rent, it definitely helps a great deal. So yes, what about the iPhone 10? Yeah, that's a gimme, right? No? But what about a car? Some people are saying no, but they're saying no, like, "No) <laughs> I have to borrow money to buy a car because I want the new Tesla Model 3, man. But does a car only go down in value? Yes. Yes. And don't you start telling me, oh, my car is going to be a classic. Your Honda Civic will never be a classic. Will a car ever pay itself off for personal use? probably not. Now, if you are a business, like you're an Uber driver, even an Uber, all right, probably not going to make that much. But as a taxi driver, or you have a business where you're delivering, or you have driving, then that becomes a business expense, okay? And that becomes a slightly different calculation if you're in a business. But for personal vehicles, just driving, commuting, taking the kids to school, soccer practice, going to church, whatever, no. No does not pass the debt rules. We're gonna talk about how to buy a car with no loan here in a moment. Just because it's permissible to borrow money for certain things, it doesn't mean that you must, okay? Just remember that. It is still smallpox. It is still being a slave, okay? Do it only if you must. So let's talk a little bit about student loans. A few fine prints as you think about your student loans. Federal student loans cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. What that means is that there are only two ways to get out of your student loans. The first is you pay it off. The second is you die. (laughs) So I think I know which I would prefer. In fact, the Uncle Sam is so considerate, if you file your taxes and you have student loans and you have a tax return, he'll just save you the trouble and just garnish it out of your tax return, tax refund, because it'll just save you the postage. Isn't he nice? He's like, yeah, you owe us anyway, so I'll just keep the difference, thanks. The government can even garnish your tax returns. I just talked about that. Just because you qualify, don't take the max amount. It just boggles my mind sometimes when I talk to people. It's like, yeah, you know, I qualify for $25,000 for a student loan, so yeah, I took it. Uh, How much did you need? "Hmm, 15. What, Why, why do you take more than you need? And then, oh yeah, and I got a living loan. Like, what in the world? Just because you qualify, don't take the max amount. Take as little as you need because you're going to have to pay interest on this thing. It ain't free money. Later on down the road, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I have to make payments on this? Oh, I I, I forgot. Well, don't forget because you're going to pay the price later. Education. What does Ellen White have to say about student loans? She actually has something to say about it. Education, page 221, paragraph 2. In acquiring an education... Many students would gain a most valuable training if they would become self-sustaining. Instead of incurring debts or depending on the self-denial of their parents, let young men and young women depend on themselves. If you are here in our seminar this morning, I hammered this point. Depend on yourself. God helps those who help themselves. Don't expect a handout, even if you're a student. And you know a lot of times, I'm, I'm getting off script here, but I have to let this off my chest, a lot of times. I live near Southern Avenue University, and a lot of times I look at the students that come on campus, and they're driving like, brand new BMWs, and I'm like, what's wrong with you people? And I look at them, and I realize, wait a minute, they have not learned the most valuable training that Ellen White recommends. Let's continue reading. Same passage. They will thus learn, the students who learn to be self-supporting, they will thus learn the value of money, the value of time, strength and opportunities, and will be under far less temptation to indulge idle and spendthrift habits. These are the things you gain when you learn to work, even as a student. The lessons of economy, industry, self-denial, practical business management, and steadfastness of purpose thus mastered would prove a most important part of their equipment for the battle of life. Let me put it another way. If you are a student and you're in school, and you're working your way through school. The work that you do is a more valuable training than the degree you're getting. Because guess what? You might be the top of your class, but if you don't know how to work, you're not going to get a job. I work for a ministry. I'm an employer. And if you don't know how to work, I'm not going to hire you. It's just that simple. I don't care what degree you have. So Ellen here is saying, learn how to work it is more important than even the degree you're getting in school and in the process you will learn all of these values right right up here and so all the students that have it given to them we talked about economic outpatient care this morning i'm just fearful for them that they are actually not gaining the equipment most needed for the battles of life all right so let's talk about the story of our house so talking about getting out of debt Let me share my experience with uh, our house. So this is my wife and I and the house uh, that we live in. Paid off in two years. We bought the house, closed on it, I believe August 1, 2013. We paid it off July 31, 2015. So here are our numbers. We bought our house, one acre. It has two two houses on it. We have a guest house that we rent out, $185,000. We had an $85,000 mortgage. 15-year fixed-rate mortgage at 3.49%, 3.5% interest. Our minimum monthly payments were $607.24. But our average monthly payments came out to be $3,700. And we had a $100,000 down payment. So everyone asks, what's the secret? How did you pay off your house in, in two years? Well, the last two items here, that's the secret. You might be thinking, that's no secret. Well... That's sort of the secret. The secret is that there's no secret. (laughs) The way to pay off a house is to save a ton of money and to just make gigantic, hairy, painful payments. That's the There's no secret sauce. You're going to pay it off. So pay it off as soon as you can. So my wife had a dream of buying her first house in cash. And so long before I ever met her, before I got married, she's already been saving up. And so that's why we had such a huge down payment. She worked as a nurse, and then she actually worked in a self-supporting institution. And even then, she was still saving money. So I do all the presentations, and I'm sort of the one that talks about this stuff. But my wife's actually the engine that makes this thing go, okay? So credit goes where credit's due. But the big down payment, that's where we got the money. And of course, I had saved up some, but not nearly, uh, not the majority, of course. And big monthly payments, nearly all of our extra savings went toward the mortgage. So we were paying six times on average the minimum payments. So what we did, and this could apply to some of you, whether it's paying off a house or investing in something else. We were both working at the time. We didn't have a child yet. And so we actually lived on one income. And we saved and invested the entire second income. Actually, we lived on less than one income because... This is also a helpful tip for you who might uh, be starting family someday. If you plan on having a stay-at-home mom, one income home, guess what? You're gonna be living on one income anyway. So why not just start living that way now, okay? So by the time that your kid comes around and mom stays home, you don't have to change a thing. Whereas if you were living to the max of two incomes and you want to have mom stay at home, all of a sudden you have a crisis on your hands because you're losing half your income and you're adding a third mouth to feed. So this is what we did. We lived on one income, we saved 50% or more, and we just happened to put it all into the house. Now, some people are like, you only had a 3.5% interest rate on your mortgage. Shouldn't you have invested in something higher interest and all that? Yeah, we could have done that. But here's the reason why we did it. The reason why we did not was because we realized, we did the math, we knew we could pay it off in about two years. And we were doing some family planning, we knew we wanted to have a child, and we realized that if we could pay off the house within that time and have a child after that, it would lower our monthly budgeting needs so that we need lower cash flow when mom stays home. So that's the reason why we did it. It was not to maximize our investment returns, it was to minimize our cash flow needs. That's for those of you who care. But for you, But for you, you might choose to invest it in something else, uh, maybe in a rental property or index funds or something else, uh, but that's how we did it. And that's the secret, how we paid off the house. And at the end, it's all about the savings rate. That's the bottom line. If you can juice up the savings rate, our savings rate was over 50% uh, continuously for the past few years. That's the only way that this could work. If you're living 99%, you know, 99.9% of your monthly income, you're never going to pay off anything early. The only way that's going to happen is you've got to trim that expense. We're going to talk about budgeting and how we're going to do that in the second half of this hour, so stick around for that. But this is the story of our house. So the benefits. We now get to live rent and mortgage-free. Rent and mortgage, generally for most people's financial budget, is the largest expense in their monthly expenses. Anywhere from 25 30 40%. For us, it's 0% now. Eliminating the single largest expense in our budget now. We own our home instead of the bank. So there's no risk of foreclosure That's a great feeling you just have that security and we have more free cash for other things now So we put up solar panels. So now the solar company or the electric company pays us every month So our electric bill is not just zero. It's negative like they pay us and Then we paid off the mortgage the same month that our baby was born Praise the Lord, the timing and everything worked out. So the same month we paid off the house, my wife quit her job, and our baby was born. Bam, bam, bam. And so one less thing to worry about, we praise the Lord for that. And this is uh, our backyard. That's what it looks like. And this was when it snowed a couple years ago. It looks a little different now because I planted a whole bunch of fruit trees, and it's a little messier, but hopefully uh, it'll pay off someday. And the other uh, other (coughs) benefit, of course, is that we saved a ton of interest. So we had a 15-year mortgage, conventional mortgage. So imagine if this was 30 years, you're going to have to multiply this number way out, much more. So we had an $85,000 mortgage, monthly payment. If we just paid it every month for 15 years, we would have paid $24,000 in interest, which is actually not that much. A lot of 30-year mortgages, um, you're, you'll be paying you know, more than double. But because we paid it off in two years, we actually only pay $3,300 in interest. So over the life of our mortgage, how much did we actually save? We saved $21,000 in interest. I don't know about you, but that's a lot of money. Those are a lot of diapers, all right, $21,000. So that's mathematically speaking, this is the benefit. Now, let me make this point clear. Interest payments in the form of our mortgage, is an invisible cost. For most people, it's painless. But it's like death by a thousand cuts. Because every month you're making this payment, you're just making the same payment every month, and you just get in this rote habit of it. But what you don't realize is that over the life of your your mortgage, you've actually lost $21,000 in this particular example without ever knowing it. It's like someone came in and stole money out of your bank account and you just never knew that it was there. So you want to pay off your mortgage for this reason. You want to save on the mortgage interest. And of course, people are like, oh, but I have to save on my taxes. Well, with a new tax plan or whatever, you're probably not going to itemize on your home uh, mortgage interest, uh, interest anyway. Most people didn't to begin with. And uh, the reality is, even if you did, you're going to save more money paying off your mortgage than you are in the tax re- refund, in the itemization of your tax or your mortgage interest. So let's talk about the car, all right? This is the part where people with weeping and gnashing of teeth come to me and say, how can you tell me that I cannot borrow money to buy a car? I'm not saying you can't. I'm just telling you that you would be extremely unwise if you did. Uh, Just because your friends jump off a cliff, would you jump too? Buying a car without a loan. So how do we do it? How do we do it? The average car payment (coughs) in the United States right now is $500 a month for 68 months. That means it's about $34,000 roughly. And here is the really amazing secret of how to buy a car without a loan. If you are capable of making the $500 payment after you buy the car, you can make the payment before you buy the car. Does that make sense? Because like, if all of a sudden I buy this car and I can magically come up with $500 a month, why could you not do that beforehand? It, the math has to add up. The money has to come from somewhere. So this is the secret. How do you buy a car without a loan? Pay yourself first. Instead of paying the pay, car payment to the bank or to the dealer, pay it to yourself first. And then you go into the dealership and you buy a car in cash. This is how you do it. Let me give you an example. So you drive, whoops, I'm sorry. You drive a cheap temporary car. These are the steps. Notice, temporary, okay? Just to calm everyone down. (gasps) You want me to drive a cheap car? Who do you think I am? (laughs) Temporarily, people. In the meantime, pay yourself the car payment. That's another way of saying save up. Use the amount saved plus the equity of the temporary car to upgrade to a new car in cash. Rinse, repeat as needed. This is how you do it. Let's take a look at some numbers. So first, buy a $2,000 temporary car. You might have to sell your current car. All right, you might have a car with a car note on it. Sell that thing, pay off the car note, save a little bit of money. Go out there, buy (coughs) buy a $2,000 car. And I'm being generous because $2,000, you can get a pretty nice car. I drive a car, 2,500 bucks. That's what it's worth. Um, It's a great car. Save the $500 a month or whatever the car payment amount might be for the car that you want, save it in the bank account, put it somewhere where you won't be tempted to spend it, okay? Save it for 12 months, and in 12 months, you'll have $6,000. Then in just one year, you go and you sell a $2,000 car, and when a car is only worth $2,000, you're not going to depreciate that much in 12 months, okay? You might be able to sell it for more than $2,000 in 12 months. That's the beauty of driving cheap cars. Sell the temporary car and upgrade to a seven or eight thousand dollar car. So in one year, you've gone from a two thousand dollar junker to a seven to eight thousand dollar car. Go go a second year now. Five hundred dollars a month for twelve months, six thousand dollars. Sell that car, seven or eight thousand, and now you can upgrade to a twelve to fourteen thousand dollar car. Shall I continue? You can do that for a third year, and you're up to a twenty thousand dollar car. You can practically buy a new car almost for that amount, or you can do it another way. You buy a $2,000 temporary car and then you just go all out. 68 months, $500 a month, $34,000. Then you sell a temporary car and you can buy an entire fleet of vehicles (laughs) in just a little over five years. Is there, do we need to borrow money to buy a car? No. And am I saying you can't drive a nice car? No. All I'm saying is you need to be a little bit patient. You just can't have it now, but you can have it later. Is that an acceptable thing to say (laughs) in this this audience? You're not going to stone me, right? (laughs) You can drive a nice car, and I hope you do drive a nice car, but you don't have to go in debt to do it. Pay yourself first, save up, upgrade as you go, all right? Is that clear? Are everyone okay? They're they're not fainting on me? All right. So a car is a depreciating asset. Purchase it as you would a tool that will never increase in value. So the rule of thumb, never borrow to buy a car. And we're going to talk about this a little bit more. Some people are like, what about a 0% financing? Well, I'll just mention this now in case you're not here tomorrow. When you finance a car, you are obligated to purchase full comprehensive and collision coverage on your insurance. So you're going to pay more on your insurance. And there are other things, I'm sure, that are um, included in that. So you don't want to borrow money to buy a car. Buy it in cash. Credit cards. All right. Got to talk about this. Credit cards are not dangerous. Credit cards' use without self-control is dangerous. You catch the difference? You know about guys like Dave Ramsey, right? He is anti-credit card. Like, credit card is worse than cancer. It is anathema, it is sin. I don't go quite as far as Dave Ramsey. I believe, I agree with him to the extent that it is possible to live without credit cards. So if people out there choose not to live with credit cards, I don't have a problem with that. I actually say good for you, for having self-control, self-discipline, knowing your limits, I've got no problem with it. But at the same time, I have to admit that credit cards do have benefits. Reward points, cash back, in your travel, whatever. And um, you know, the statement Dave Ramsey always says is nobody's ever said that I got rich off of credit card points. Well, that might be true, but I'd have known of plenty of people who would be able to travel to see family, for example, go on vacations that they never would have otherwise been able to do without it. So there are benefits, okay? I'm trying to be fair to both sides, all right? You understand what I'm trying to do. I'm not hating on credit cards, but I'm not saying everyone should have a credit card either. So we got to have self-control, and we need to have the balance of how to deal with this. So what's proper credit card usage? Number one, don't use them to buy stuff you don't need. If you buy something you don't need, time to cut up your credit card. Never carry a balance. Pay them off every month. These are the two rules. If you violate either of these two rules, time for some plastic surgery, as they call it. Jesus actually says this. If your right hand offends thee, what do you do? Cut it off. And I would rather cut the piece of plastic that's in my right hand rather than literally cutting my right hand, right? But if you do use credit cards, all right, if you do use credit cards, here's the big tip. Consolidate your credit card uses to as few cards as absolutely necessary. Because a lot of times people are like, oh, I want this bonus. Oh, this one has the cash back for this. This has the travel points for that. This one's for this airline. This one's for that airline. And all of a sudden you've got all of these credit cards with like $15 worth of rewards, like spread out real thin, and you're never able to cash it out. So if you want rewards that you can actually use, have minimum number of cards. For my family, we have one card. So it's just a cashback card. The reason is because we spend so little that we never earn enough points that's worth anything. So we just say, give us the cash back. But if you're a big Costco user or whatever, the Costco card, you might get 4% on this or that, the other thing, and Costco, you know, you're spending you know, thousands of dollars there anyway. So consolidate your usage so you maximize the rewards. And of course, pay them off every month. So credit card usage, um, use them responsibly. It's a financial instrument of mass destruction. So if you can't control yourself, put it away, cut it up. Paying off debt, all right, we need to talk about this. How do we pay off debt? First step, we need to own the debt. Don't make excuses and don't play the victim. We will never be able to get out of debt if we're always blaming someone else for our problems. It's the government's fault. It's Obama's fault. It's Trump's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's my teacher's fault. Well, guess what? Doesn't matter whose fault it is, maybe you're right but you're still the one that's gonna have to pay it off. So just stop with the excuses, own this thing, and let's just, you know, take care of business. Don't make excuses. There is no alternative to making big payments. That's just the ugly fact. If you're gonna pay off your debt, you're gonna have to pay it off. And the only way you're gonna pay it off sooner is making bigger payments, that's it. You might be able to negotiate sometimes with creditors if you're in real distress. And they might lower it, you know, you might get, you know, 10 cents on the dollar pay ma- payback or something, but it's unlikely to eliminate the debt. You need to make debt pay off the number one priority in the short term. Savings plan, we're going to talk about savings plans in a moment. And then squeeze every dime out of your monthly spending plan to get rid of that debt. And don't worry about other investments until your debt is paid off. A lot of people are like, oh, is there a secret investment? You know, maybe it's Bitcoin or something else that I can earn a whole bunch of money and then I can pay off my debt. Well, No. That's borrowing money to go invest, essentially. It's the same concept. And let's say you've got a credit card and it's charging you, what, let's say, 25% interest. You will have to find an investment that exceeds 25% guaranteed in order for you to even make a difference. I'm not sure I know of anything that can do that reliably. Whereas the interest on your credit card, it is guaranteed. You are going to have to pay that. So paying off your credit cards, let's say it's that credit card 25%, when you pay that off, every time you make an extra payment, the money that you're putting on into that credit card debt, you are getting essentially a 25% rate of return on that money. So getting out of debt is your best investment until you are out of debt. So how do we do it? What's the methodology? We want to use the debt snowball. So what's the debt snowball? How do we do it? We list the debts from smallest to largest balance, smallest balance to largest balance, we pay minimums on all of the other big debts except the smallest one. And then we focus the intense efforts to pay off the smallest, and then when we're done with that, we roll all the extra payments into the next one, into the next one, into the next one. And so like the snowball picks up speed, you're adding the minimum payments of the other payments as you go along. And so this is an example. If this person has 38,500 total in debt, credit card number one, two, car loan, student loan, if he has $1,000 to put towards the debt each month, in the first month, the credit card is gone. Sec- and in four months, both credit cards are gone. In a little over three years, everything will be gone. You just go one at a time at a time. And th- the benefit of doing it this way, instead of going based on interest rate, because a lot of people say, well, you'll save more money if you pay out highest interest rate, to lowest interest rate. Well, that's true. The problem is, let's say, let's say the car loan um, is the highest interest, let's just say and you start there, and you're putting in $1,000 a month. How many months would it be before you feel like you have made any progress? It'll be 10 months before you pay off the first thing. Have you ever tried to sustain intensity for 10 months in something? Maybe for you, 10 months is not such a long time. For a lot of people, 10 months is a, it's like a marathon. And a lot of times after three, four, five, six months, you feel like you haven't made any progress. People give up. Whereas if you are going the death snowball method, within one month, bam, you can make a big red line across the list, right? Like, yes, this thing's gone forever. In four months, you have two. So in four months, you get the feeling like you're halfway there. Whereas going the other way, 10 months later, you're not even a quarter of the way done. So that's, it's a psychological game um, that you play with yourself and perhaps you will save more money the other way. But paying off by balance versus interest rate, It's a psychological motivation that helps us sustain our momentum. That's the key. So that's how you pay off the debt. Paying off debt is the best investment. If you regret being debt-free, you can always go back. (laughs) Easy. Easy state to undo. So give it a try, right? Try it out. See if you don't like it. If you don't like it, go borrow some money. All right, so we need to talk about budgeting now. Because we talk about getting out of debt, but how do we stay out of debt? only way to do that is we got to have a plan a budget jesus says this in luke fourteen twenty-eight to 30 for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it otherwise when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who see it begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish jesus is simply saying before you start make a budget you got to have a plan for your money telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went all right So how do we do a financial plan, or how do we create a budget? The way that I like to think about it is in three categories, and they flow one into the other. We start with life events. What are life events? Life events are individual um, instances or needs or purchases that occur in life that we need to budget for. Could be weddings, college, buying a house, a vacation, mission trip, what have you, anything that needs money, individual type um, events. And all of those things we consolidate into our long-term and short-term savings plan, which is just a list of the things that we want to save up for. Short-term savings are things that are, we need within five years. Long-term savings are things that we don't need for five years or more. And then that information will help us as we create our monthly spending plan. And the monthly spending plan is what we typically know as the budget, the monthly budget. And you see the arrows, it flows this way, and then the information flows to monthly spending, but our monthly spending plan and the savings plans has a feedback loop. And it guides us in how we make our decisions, and we're gonna illustrate how this works. But this is the general overview of how to create a budget that aligns our goals with our income and also our, our plans. So life event plans, I mentioned this already. What are life event plans? These are some of the things that we talk about. Retirement, big expenses, purchases, cars, home purchase, weddings, things like that. Having a baby. So a life event plan, we need to answer a couple questions. For each of these, we need to have individual budgets. We need to ask, how much money will it cost? So let's say it's a wedding. How much will this wedding cost? You might go through the numbers and be like, hmm, this wedding's going to cost $50,000. <laughs> Haha, that's impossible because we realize we can't afford it. So sometimes going through the process of listing out the things helps us beforehand realize, okay, we need to make an adjustment before it's too late, before we bought all the decorations and we had the dress and the cake and everyone's coming and we realize, oh man, we need another $10,000 and we're stuck, right? So this is why we do it. When do I need this money? How long do I have? And based on how, when do I need this money, how much do I need to start saving now, okay? These are the questions we need to ask uh, on our life events, and this feeds into our long-term and short-term savings. So, to illustrate how this works, I am calling upon our friends Bill and Penny Saver, fictional couple, uh, to show us their financial uh, budget. They are a two-income home, making about $66,000 take-home pay so after taxes and stuff are withheld. They do not have children, newly married, young. This is their long and short-term savings plan. So these are their various life events that they have budgeted for. Sorry for you guys in the back. Uh, I know the the numbers are a little small. I'll try to read them off for you. So their long-term goals, they have three of them. They want to have a down payment for a house of $40,000 in 10 years, they have student loans that they want to pay off in 12 years, 60, worth $60,000, and they want a $1 million in retirement in 35 years. So the total amount they want in their long-term goals is $1.1 million. And based on all these numbers, we figure that they will need to save approximately $1,400 per month for their long-term goals. What about their short-term goals? Things that they need within five years. They have credit card debt, $1,000. They want to pay that off in the first month. They have an emergency fund, $3,000, they want to have that within four months. They have a mission trip that they're going in 10 months, they need $2,000. They want a new car because they listened to my seminar, they're not going to borrow money for a car anymore. $7,000 in two years, and so approximately they need a a little over $1,000 a month, but really the number down here, they want a total of $13,000. How do we use this information? By organizing their goals in this manner, we don't have to focus on seven different things. We really only have two things to focus on. We have this number here, $1,400 a month, and then we have this number here, $13,000. So the bottom line with their budget is this. In the short term, they need to to sprint to $13,000 as soon as possible for their short-term goals. It's a sprint. So they're just going to pay things off or to save up for things as quickly as they can as they need them. But for the long-term, they need to save $1,400 each month. That's a marathon. Okay, so the short-term and the long-term savings, one's a sprint, one's a marathon. The long-term savings, the only way you're gonna finish the race is you have to be steady. You have to keep a steady pace. That's why you have to set up, how much do I need to save every month systematically? Whereas on the short-term, we just got to knock this thing out. Let's save as much as we can, as quick as we can. But we have to keep these things distinct from each other because if we just focus on one, we're going to neglect the other, and then we're going to end up either not having our money in the short term or in the long term we keep putting it off and we never end up saving for our long-term goals. That's why we have the two. So this is their bottom line numbers. 13000 for the short term, 1400 a month for the long term. So Bill and Penny's saving plan, it does several things for them the savings plan, it reveals clearly their priorities in life because everything costs money in life. And if we can organize our budget in such a way where we can think through these are the things that we want to do, you know what? That is actually a way of prioritizing your life priorities. Because if it's like everything comes first before paying off the house, well, guess what? Paying off the house is not a priority for you. If having a new car, going on vacation is always at the top of the list, you can know, and anyone looking at the budget can know that your priorities are that these things are more important than these other things, okay? So it helps us know ourselves. That's one of the benefits. And all the extra money, quote-unquote extra money that we receive has a place to go instead of being spent. You know, we get a, maybe it's a birthday, you know, birthday card, someone gives us 20 bucks. If we don't have a savings plan, We might be like, oh, $20, yay, let's go shopping. But when you have a savings plan, you don't have to say, "Hmm, I don't know what to do with this money. You know exactly what to do with this money because you already have your goals lined up, okay? You know exactly, extra money, I know exactly where it's going to go. It's gonna help me pay off my credit cards that much sooner. It's gonna help me buy that new car that much sooner because you've made the plan, all right? And also it gives a target number to save for in our monthly spending plan. We're gonna talk about that in a moment it helps us know in our monthly expenditures how much I need to have left over. Because if I don't have that goal, I'm just going to be spending like, oh, I didn't spend everything, so I must be okay. We'll look at that in a moment. And also it gives us a final target number for total savings. We know what we need because we've thought it through. We've created a budget for it. So if we exceed, let's say that they reach their target ahead of time. They saved up their 13000 or whatever, and they saved up their $1.1 million or whatever it is early, They have surplus money, they can give it back to God without compromising one bit their lifestyle, their comfort, their goals, but God's work uh, can be benefited. But this only happens if they've planned ahead. What Jesus said, count the cost first before you start building. So let's take a look at their monthly spending now, shall we? And then we'll see how these interplay with each other, the monthly spending and their savings plans. So Bill and Penny's monthly spending, they bring home $5,500 a month. This is after-tax, take-home pay, just to make it nice round numbers. But their expenses are $4,200, so they spend about 76%, and they save 24%, $1,300 a month. Now, if I were just looking at those numbers without any context, I would say they're doing pretty good. I mean, they're saving t- nearly a quarter of what they're bringing home. I'd say that's pretty good. Most financial gurus... Today out there, they recommend somewhere between 10 to 15% savings. So they're double that. And uh, these are some of their expenses. You know, these are just roughly uh, in my area. I tried to use, you know, general numbers in Tennessee where I live. So if you're in San Francisco or New York City, obviously these aren't realistic, but based on my area. So this is how we use the monthly spending. This number here and the, spe- uh, and the saving plan numbers and how they work together. We need to review our savings goals So they have a 24% savings rate So their net savings is $1,300 a month Their long-term savings They need $1,400 a month to reach their goals And they have $13,000 that they need to save up for So even though they are saving 24% They are not even able to meet the $1,400 a month target that they have You see that? And that means at the rate that they're going, they don't have any extra to go towards their $13,000 short-term savings goals. So you see how these two things work together. It helps uncover the reality of our needs and our savings. We might look at them and say, man, you're saving a quarter of your take-home pay, good for you. But based on their individual priorities and their goals, what we realize now is they're never going to reach there. So they're gonna have to make some changes. So what are the options? Bill and Penny has a couple options. Number one, they can adjust their saving goals, okay? They can go back to the savings and say, you know, this wasn't really realistic. Let's adjust. Let's change. There's nothing wrong with making changes to your budget. It's not the law of the Medes and Persians. You can change it. Deadlines. They might say something like, you know what? This credit card thing, you know, maybe, you know, maybe we'll extend it to two months or something else we can extend a little bit longer so we can pay off the credit card first. Whatever it might be in their particular situation, they have that as an option. They could try to increase their income. It's easier said than done in certain cases, but if you can work extra shifts, overtime, whatever, maybe that's the way to do it, but that's not always an option. Maybe they're going to sell some stuff on Craigslist, eBay, whatever. Cut spending. Uh, Their name is Bill and Penny Savers, so I think I know what they're going to do. And then number four, you can do a combination of these things. But number five, what is not an option is no debt. When we have this plan, the whole point of having the plan is so that we don't need to borrow money. So we're going to borrow money to to pay off certain things in the debt. It sort of defeats the purpose. So let's take a look. What can they do? So I upped their savings rate to 35%. And we just play with the numbers and say, okay, if we save 35%, are we able now to reach our goals? Their net savings now. Excuse me, would need to be $1,925. They would have enough for their $1,400 a month, and they'll have an extra $525 per month, uh, and they will be able to reach $13,000 in two years. Now, I will be clear, you're gonna go back and look at this slide later, and you're gonna see, hey, you were wrong in your math. Yes, perhaps it may not necessarily work with the exact time frame that they have, but with the adjustments, with the deadlines, and a few things that they can work out in their short term savings. $525 a month, will be able, they can manage to get $13,000 within two years for their goals. So when we look at it that way, what we realize now is this feedback loop that we talked about between a savings plan and the monthly spending plan, them interacting together, we realize now we have a target for monthly spending, how much we need to shoot for as far as how much to save. So what this means is we need to save an extra $625 per month. That factors out to just $21 per day. Okay, so can we do it? Let's take a look at their new spending plan. These are a few things that I have suggested for them to do so they can move to a slightly smaller place, $900 instead of $1,100 place, they would save $200. Now, this is just an example. They, don't, they may not need to move to a different place if they can squeeze an extra $200 out of these other aspects of their monthly spending. You understand? So this is just some examples of what they could do. They, uh, uh, utilities and cell phone, they move to a smaller place. Utilities are less. They uh, get a cheaper cell phone plan. We'll talk about how to do that tomorrow for those of you who care about that. Uh, they save $100 on food. That means eating out a few less times a month. Transportation, they start carpooling, they save a little bit on gas, they save 50 bucks. Insurance, they shop around, they might save $50. Personal effects, $30 is like buying a few less articles of clothing or whatever it might be. Recreation, they don't go out to the movies as much. If they go out to movies, don't know. But here, we have 35% now of savings. And they're at $1,925. So all of this here is just to show you you can make a lot of little changes that doesn't affect your lifestyle in a monumental way that will help you drive the numbers here to a point where you can actually reach your long-term and short-term goals. So you need to, look at your, you need to start with the end in mind first in order for us to know how to accomplish this. So now with this in mind, they're able now to reach their goals. So what we have just illustrated is how the life events flow into long-term and short-term savings, and the monthly spending and the long and short-term savings, they create a feedback loop. We compare the numbers back and forth. How much do I need to save in order to reach my goals? Well, these are my goals, but I'm not saving enough, so what can I do to trim my spending? Do I need to adjust my goals, my deadlines? And this interchange now becomes... Basically what we manage on a month-to-month basis in our financial planning sessions with our with our spouses at home So saving goals drive the plan So you might be thinking well, this is a little bit different than the way that we think about budgets Usually people when they talk about budgeting is like here's a list of all the categories Here's some recommended percentages. Just make the numbers add up to zero That's not how we think about it. We have a different view of budgets most budgets are designed to be a spending control mechanism. Meaning they are a set of handcuffs to keep you from overspending. That's the ultimate goal. But the way that we run our budget is it's a savings maximization tool. You realize the difference? We're trying to increase the amount that we save, not necessarily merely lowering the amount that we spend. And what, why is the difference? because it answers the question of why. We as human beings from a very early age, we want to know why. Why should I not buy this dress? Because the bud- it's not in the budget. That's not a good enough reason, okay? Why should I, why should I not buy this you know, uh, new phone, or new, new I, uh, iPhone, or go out to eat in this place? Why, why, why? Well, we need to have an answer for the question why. And when we have a savings plan in place we know the reason why i should not buy this outfit i should not buy this phone because it will inhibit me from going on that vacation it will keep me from being able to pay off my debts in time it will keep me from getting that new car i want in two years it gives us a very clear picture of what is preventing us from accomplishing it's the means versus the end it makes the distinction between the means versus the end it's like This is a picture of the Grand Canyon, it's hard to see on the slides, (laughs) but it's like, I guess we're really close to the Grand Canyon here, but usually when I do a seminar, we're far away. But even here, all right, let's say we're going to the Grand Canyon. We're never going to say the goal of this road trip is to not run out of gas. We never say that. We always say the goal of this, or the destination of this road trip is the Grand Canyon, but understood within that statement is that in order for us to accomplish that, we're not gonna run out of gas. So when we talk about budgeting, it has to be what's the end destination? What's the goal? And not overspending is merely the means to get us to that goal. Okay? So when we think about budgeting, it's not don't buy this, don't buy that because it's not in the budget. No, no, no. It's you shouldn't buy this right now because it will stop you from reaching the Grand Canyon. Does that make sense? Yeah. And this is incredibly uh, important. It keeps a focus on the savings rate, number one reason or number one way to uh, build wealth. And this is so key. It makes achieving goals the, the purpose uh, and it makes budgeting much more motivating. Because you go through the checkout line and it's like, I know I shouldn't buy this. And we're like self-flagellation. Like we're, we're giving ourselves the guilt of like, oh, my husband's going to be so upset. Oh, I know I shouldn't do this. Oh, but it feels so good, right? We're telling ourselves this, but then but what we should be doing is look, Instead of focusing on what we can't do, let's focus on what we are going to achieve together. You want to go to Paris? Okay, let's put it on our, our savings plans. So it's like, okay, I'm not going to buy this thing, and I'm, you know, it might hurt right now, but boy, it's going to feel so good when I'm on that vacation. You see, it flips the whole discussion around where it's what am I trying to accomplish instead of what I am prevented from doing. All right, so this is why we view budgets so differently. A budget is telling your money where to go instead of wondering where it went. John Maxwell. So I need to close on this point, and that is, but it's, it's so hard. We have this tendency to think, oh, but it's so hard to control my spending. Ellen White actually has a few things to say about this. Councils on Stewardship, page 251, paragraph two, and this ties in uh, self-discipline and debt and having a budget and all of these things. I have seen poor families struggling with debt, and yet the children were not trained to deny themselves in order to aid their parents. In one family where I visited, the daughters expressed a desire for an expensive piano. Gladly would the parents have gratified this wish, but they were embarrassed with debt. Today, it might not be an expensive piano. It might be a new iPhone. It might be a new car. It might be a camera. It might be something else, right? Fill in the blank with what you will. Continuing, the daughters knew this, and had they been taught to practice self-denial, they would not, have been, would not have given their parents the pain of denying their wishes. But although they were told that it would be impossible to gratify the desires, the matter did not end there. The wish was expressed again and again, thus continually adding to the heavy burden of the parents. On another visit, I saw the coveted musical instrument in the house and knew that some hundreds of dollars had been added to the burden of debt I hardly know whom to blame most, the indulgent parents or the selfish children. Both are guilty before God. This one case will illustrate many. These young persons, although they profess to be Christians, have never taken the cross of Christ. For the very first lesson to be learned of Christ is the lesson of self-denial. I'm at GYC, surely this doesn't happen to anyone here, right? Young people today at GYC, we've all learned the lesson of self-denial. We never ask our parents for stuff when we know that they are in financial distress. Christ The very first lesson to be learned of Christ is a lesson of self-denial. Said our Savior, "If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me." In no way can we become disciples of Christ except by complying with this condition. So what's the problem with this family? They didn't have a financial plan. And as a result, We see the example, Ellen White herself saw it. It brought family discord. Parents having to break their children's heart by saying no, and then finally the children adding to the parents' burden of debt because they kept nagging and nagging and nagging. But the issue is a spiritual one. The inability to stay out of debt and to live on a budget is a symptom of a spiritual problem. And this is an important point, what is that problem? It is the problem of discontentment. The Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 9, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment led us therewith to be content. But I want to close with this passage, and this is a promise. Because some of us might be feeling, it's so difficult. I really have a hard time keeping my spending under control. To have a plan and to stick with it. To get out of debt. I'm embarrassed with debt, just like that family. I just have a hard time with it. We have to understand, number one, it's a spiritual problem. Underneath it, we need to look to Jesus for that help. And we talked about the financial laws of health earlier, and law number eight is trusting God. And here's Philippians 4, verse 11 and 13. This is a powerful promise that I want to tie up, not just this session, but everything that we talked about today. Paul writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I, learnt, for I have learned for i have learned in whatever situation i am to be content i know how to be brought low and i know how to abound in any and every circumstance i have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need paul is saying i have learned this important lesson that you need to learn i have abounded i have been abased i have had plenty i have had nothing i have been hungry i have been full but i have learned to be content in every situation that I have found myself in. And how did I do that? Here's the promise. Are you ready for it? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I want to point out this very important fact about the context of this verse. We read this verse in isolation frequently, and we claim this promise for everything under the sun. I need to take this test. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I need to lose weight. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I need to overcome this sin, right? My temper, whatever. I can do all things who strengthens me. I really like that girl and I need to go talk to her. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But notice, notice the the context here is very specific. What is it that Paul says, I need the strength of Christ to help me with? To be content. Brother Alistair. Oh, what? A line of basketball. He's oh, is that right? Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> so this is the promise I'm going to leave with you. Philippians four thirteen. It is not. It is a wonderful promise to claim for all of those other circumstances. Okay, don't get me wrong. We should memorize this verse. We should claim this promise. But for those of us who are struggling with our financial situation, with budgeting with having a plan, with getting out of debt, with being able to control our desires in such a way that we can keep our financial house in order and not go down in flames to provide for our family, save for the future, all of these things. This promise is for us. Amen? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And by his grace, we can learn in whatever state we are in, therewith to be Content. let us close with prayer father in heaven we thank you for your marvelous promise that we indeed can do all things through christ who strengthens us whether it is something as mundane as making a budget or getting out of debt we know you can help us and so for those of us who might be struggling with questions of what to do how to manage their money and time and resources. Give them wisdom, Lord, as we trust in you. We know that you're able. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You have given us principles uh, that, which, which if we apply, we will find true success. So bless this congregation. Be with each individual. May they find that those answers that they need in Jesus. And bless us the remainder of this GYC weekend. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2017 Conference Arise in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.